Welcome to the Life and Legacy Show, where we discuss all things elder law, estate, and legacy planning. Hosted by certified elder law attorney, Tim Seckler, from the Seckler Law Firm. And now your host, attorney Tim Seckler. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Life and Legacy Show, sponsored by the Seckler Law Firm. Where great families make great estate plans. I'm your host, Tim Seckler, uh, and today the episode is about planning for people with disabilities, people with special needs, uh, their unique circumstances, the ability for them to manage assets, the the ability for them to access important government programs to help take care of them, and the unique uh, planning um, opportunities and, and techniques that we use uh, to help folks with unique needs. Um, for those of you who have not heard the show before, this is the Life and Legacy Show, uh, sponsored by my law firm, the Secular Law Firm. We are your family's partner in all things estate planning, elder law, special needs planning, post-death administration work. We are headquartered in Mars, Pennsylvania, serving clients across uh, western Pennsylvania and even some uh, a little bit farther out in the state. You can reach me anytime at 724-841-1393 or check out all the uh, the previous episodes uh, and other information you, you need uh, on our website, secularlawfirm.com. There you can find out uh, all about the firm. You can find our blog. We put information up pretty, pretty frequently for people. Uh, you can find past episodes of the show. And you can schedule for a consultation or to come to one of our uh, free workshops where we talk about this stuff and answer your questions. Um, But today's episode, today's episode, we're going to be talking about planning for a a specific uh, category of individuals, and that is those with disabilities. And so this, this comes up a couple of different ways in our type of practice. One it could be that I'm dealing uh, with the uh, the disabled person as my client. You know, on occasion, we will meet people who became disabled uh, sometimes as an adult. It could be a result of an accident or an injury. Uh, maybe there's a lawsuit settlement coming in, uh, something like that. And, and as a result of whatever the situation is, they are now disabled and in need of some public assistance benefits. And, you know, if they end up receiving the lawsuit proceeds, we're just going to lose the free health care and, and essentially blow all of the lawsuit um, proceeds on health care expenses. And so there's some planning opportunities there. More common, at least in my practice, is planning with parents or grandparents uh, who would like to provide some sort of an inheritance, some sort of a legacy for a family member, a child or a grandchild who has a disability. And, you know, if you consider the statistics, um, just looking at things like that seem to be on the rise, uh, at least from a conversational standpoint, and that is autism. You know, one in 54 kids is diagnosed with autism somewhere on the spectrum. And I've got a lot of of clients with with children that, that may be young or teenagers who are just concerned that that maybe this child with autism is going to do just fine uh, as a working adult. Uh, And then more advanced cases seem to be, well, we kind of recognize that he's not going to, he or she's not going to be able to live that normal life. And we want to make sure that we uh, plan accordingly. And, you know, there's some people in the middle. We're just not sure. We're just not sure what this thing is going to look like. But we know that we don't, we want to make sure that we have a plan with some flexibility so that our kid, um, has the best chance at, at, you know, being productive, being able to work, being able to do those things. But also if they need the the government programs, we have the ability uh, to access them. So 
Um, to, to sort of break down uh, the concern here, you know, in my experience, disabled people uh, tend to ask the government for help, right? I mean, this is why we have Social Security disability or supplemental income benefits. It's why we have medical assistance, because we recognize, by and large, as a, uh, as a country, that there's some folks out there that need help. So we have these government programs to provide that help, SSI and SSD uh, are are income sources for uh, people with disabilities, and then generally speaking, Medicaid, which is medical assistance, can be uh, provided for people with disabilities. Perhaps um, Medicare, depending on the situation. All right. Now, some of these benefits are needs based, and some aren't. And what it really boils down to, if you have more than uh, forty quarters, which is essentially ten years of working experience, and and become disabled, you're going to be applying for disability income. If um, disability insurance benefits, which is uh, not a needs-based program. And two years later, you can be eligible for Medicare, which again is not a needs-based program. However, people that don't have uh, the working history and need to apply for uh, benefits, it could be housing benefits, it could be SSI payments, medical assistance, these are now needs-based benefits. And we need to be careful if we need access to these programs that we do not have too much by way of income or assets. Um, else we will lose eligibility for the program. Uh, and so one one sort of um, breakdown in, in how this thing works, we've kind of already identified without giving it a, a name, and that is first-party money versus third-party money. All right, now when I have a client who has maybe become disabled later in life and, and um, they they are now disabled, but they also have some money. That means the money is owned by the first party, the person with the disability. Um, we have to do certain types of trust for that person. Usually, if they if they come and say, "Hey," uh, especially younger people under the age of fifty five or so, um, maybe up to sixty five, want to apply for some sort of benefits, we may end up talking to them about doing a, a first party special needs trust. That trust could be uh, a standalone trust. There's also a way to do it where we do what's called a pooled trust, where somewhat lower amounts of money, we have the ability to uh, work with a nonprofit to manage the first-party money. Um, but essentially, either way, the money goes into a trust, and and essentially what its terms say, at, at it's very basic, and these these documents can get pretty complex, but essentially at their term, at, at their base. Um, the money says, or the trust says, that the money can only be used to supplement, but not to supplant, what the government is paying for. All right, so so certain items that the government will pay for, we're not allowed to use trust funds to pay for those items. We're not allowed to to supplant what the government's paying for. But sometimes the government doesn't pay for everything, um, and so we can use the money in the trust then to augment the quality of life for the disabled person, without risking. Um, the um, the loss of public benefits. Um, and a, an example might be, let's say, something like a vacation, right? SSI uh, is not paying for that. So uh, if there's money in a sp special needs trust and there's a family vacation lined up, we might be able to use the money in the trust in some fashion to pay for that. Um, okay, so first-party money. Now, the challenge with first-party trust, if we're going to use a trust, and trusts aren't the only option, but it tends to be a pretty good option, um, if we're going to use a first-party special needs trust, uh, one of the biggest drawbacks is that when the person ultimately passes away, 
the state of Pennsylvania has a claim against whatever's left in that trust. And so if there are leftovers when the person passes away, um, that money uh, is payable to the state of Pennsylvania for, for to the extent that they've paid out for benefits for the person. And so uh, it's great because the person doesn't lose their free health care. You know, in a lot of these situations, if the person had the money, they get uh, some money and they, they want access to the public benefits, we can put it into a special needs trust because otherwise, you know, the medical expense related to this disability may, uh, may blow all of the funds in short order. So by using a special needs trust, the person can access Medicaid, but the thinking is, well, then it's only fair when that person passes away if there's anything left over. Um, that money is payable to the state. I think I said Medicare there. I meant Medicaid. See, even I even I use the wrong terms on occasion. But Medicaid, medical assistance, is um, the um, the the means tested, needs based uh, care that most disabled people are going to be accessing. Um, okay, let's distinguish that first party money from. Third-party money. Now, third-party money means parent or grandparent has um, some assets, and they want to leave it to Johnny, uh, the child, or the grandchild. Okay, and we know that Johnny, the child, or the grandchild has some form of a disability. It could be a mental health disorder. It could be autism. It could be uh, some sort of a physical disability that's going to uh, render the person unable to uh, to go out and get work. Um, the idea here is, well, look, I've got uh, I've got a couple of kids. One in particular has a disability, and I'd like to leave that person some money, but I don't want to disrupt their thing. I don't want to disrupt the program here. They need access to public benefits, so you know I I don't want to be the uh, the person that that disrupts that. So what can we do about it? And so when I'm chatting with these people now, we're talking about third party money. Uh, creating a trust perhaps for the benefit of a third party. Now, the third party being the person with the disability. A couple of different ways to do this. Um, one is that you can, and oftentimes when I'm working with parents planning for um, for a child, we will create a third party trust um, that is a lifetime trust to mom and dad, meaning the trust exists during their life. And sometimes we don't even fund this trust. It, it's there as a receptacle. It's there uh, to receive funds upon the person's death, um, the, mom and dad's death. And the idea here is mom and dad can create the trust. They understand its terms. They understand um, what happens when they pass away, who the backup trustees are, what the terms and provisions are. We can uh, put all all sorts of sort of bells and whistles into the provisions of the trust to make sure that the child has good access uh, to recreation, good access to, to programs, good access to the funds to supplement what the, the state is otherwise paying for. Um, and the, the benefits here of doing it this way, of creating it as a lifetime trust in existence during um, the grand tour, mom and dad's lifetime is you get a feel for what it's going to be like. You get to interview the trustees if you want. And we're going to talk more about trustee choice here in a little bit. But you also, um, you understand how this thing is going to work and and it it tends to eliminate a whole bunch of stress and a whole bunch of anxiety about, you know, I'm not really sure what's going to happen when I pass away. The other thing is, Having this, what I'm, for today's purposes, calling a a receptacle trust, a trust that's in existence but maybe not funded, is um, if mom and dad are creating this trust for the benefit of their child, maybe there's other people that want to leave that child money too. 
right? Maybe the grandparents want to leave money there. Maybe an aunt or an uncle want to leave this child an inheritance. And so then we can reach out to family members and say, listen, you're not required to. We're not counting on you leaving uh, Johnny money. But if you are, we'd we'd prefer if you give some consideration to the fact that we created this this, uh, third-party special needs trust for Johnny's benefit. Um, Now, one of the biggest advantages of the third-party special needs trust as compared to a first-party trust is third-party trusts do not require payback to the state once Johnny or the disabled person passes away. So uh, if I had three kids, one of whom is disabled, I could create a third-party trust for that disabled child. But upon the disabled child's death, that trust could be payable to my other two children. That's one of the big advantages of doing a third-party trust as distinguished from doing first-party trust. And so if I'm the parent of a disabled person, I don't want Grandpa leaving my child money because now my child owns the money and they're going to have to create a first-party trust that has some drawbacks, right? We would prefer that the money be funded to a third-party trust that doesn't have the payback drawbacks, okay? And and so that's kind of key to understanding the planning is why not just give it to the disabled person and let them create their own trust? Well, because we don't get to plan with the leftovers. Um, The state often gets the leftovers at that point. Um, Now, it's also possible to do the third-party trust as what we call a testamentary trust, right? So um, the example here would be, I'm going to do a will, and I'm going to do a will for the benefit of all three of my kids. But that will could say, in the event any of my kids are disabled at the time of my death, my executor is instructed to hold the money in a supplemental needs trust for that person so that they don't lose their free access to the government programs. Okay, now, the way that we do this at the Seckler Law Firm is pretty much every single will that I write. Uh, whether you have a disabled party in your family or not, pretty much every uh, will that I write has a just-in-case special needs trust built into it. And this is sort of the key uh, distinction that we like to make between having a document and having a plan, right? Because, you know, when I sit down with a family and we're uh, we're trying to help them figure this thing out, right? We're trying to help them figure out, you know, I, I see my job as what's going to get in this family's way, you know, uh, what would happen if we had a, uh, an untimely death or disability? What would happen if a husband passes away? Is is wife well provided for? Do we need to up the life insurance is, is or vice versa? Uh, and one of the things that, that I always have to consider, in, in my opinion, this is just good planning, is what happens if one of their beneficiaries, one of their heirs becomes disabled? Even if they're not now, what happens if they're disabled at the time of their death? And so in my wills, what I usually counsel people to do is include a just-in-case special needs trust in the document. So just in case any of my heirs are disabled, then provide them their inheritance in this supplemental needs trust. All right. Now, then that way we have what I call a just-in-case or a catch-all um, trust that will manage estate assets. Now, doing it that way as compared to doing the standalone receptacle trust is it's limited in its provisions. We don't get to put in all the bells and whistles. It's just, you know, because we're not really contemplating um, 
in in a will document all of the person's needs and wishes. We're not laying it out in that kind of a detail. It, it, it's more of a just in case, you know, a testamentary trust in a will might be a page or two where a standalone uh, third-party special needs trust may end up being 30, 40 pages, right? So so it's, it's not as detailed, it's not as in-depth, but it would meet the goal of those estate assets not getting into the ownership of the person with the disability. The secondary problem here, though, is wills. If I do that in your will, a will doesn't govern everything. See, a will only governs what the will governs, and that's that means the assets that you have in your own name. But it requires a little bit more complex planning if you have uh, things like IRAs or life insurance assets that are typically beneficiary designated rather than assets that go through your will, right? So I can have your will say, give it, um, if anybody's disabled, give it to them in a special needs trust, and then they can stay on public benefits. But that that doesn't help unless we, we line up the, um, the non-estate assets, the beneficiary designated assets, to make sure that they land in the right place, because otherwise that special needs trust in your will is all for naught. And so uh, when working with families that have a family member disabled, typically, you know, we present a number of different options, but typically they're going to they're gonna at least consider doing a standalone document because then we can, we can go ahead and consider beneficiary designations. We can go ahead and name backup trustees. We can go ahead and, and, um, and understand how this thing is going to work a little bit better and have a plan for what it's going to be funded with rather than sort of leaving it the chance of, well, there might be this in my estate. There might not be this in my estate. Uh, it's common that we, we plan to fund special needs trusts with life insurance benefits because it's simple and it's easy. Um, and um, we can get a, a, a defined quantity of money into that trust that the, the parents feel is, is going to be adequate to take care of their disabled child. Um, in case you've tuned in halfway through, you are listening to the Life and Legacy Show, sponsored by my law firm, the Seckler Law Firm. My name is Tim Seckler. I'm a certified elder law attorney. Um, in my firm, we do all things elder law, estate planning, post-death administration. We are headquartered in Mars, Pennsylvania. Uh, the topic of today's conversation, if you tuned in late, is planning for people with disabilities, special needs planning to make sure that they have uh, access to the money that they need, but not so much access that they would end up losing any any public benefits that the disabled person might be uh, might be eligible to receive. Um, and we've already outlined a couple of different things. We've outlined uh, first party trust versus third party trust. Uh, and a couple of different ways to do uh, and create these types of trusts. If uh, if you tuned in late but you want to hear the full episode, you can find this episode as a podcast on uh, on Apple or on Spotify or, or uh, even on our website at secularlawfirm.com so that you can go back and listen to the full thing. Um, the uh, the other thing you could consider doing is coming to one of our estate planning workshops. We offer them just about every week now. Uh, where you can come in and we talk about wills and trusts and powers of attorney. We talk about special needs planning. We talk about underage planning uh, and and spend about an hour and a half getting you the education I think you need before you sit down with a lawyer to start making estate planning decisions. For those that come to workshops, we often offer a free consultation uh, to make sure that we understand what it is you're trying to accomplish uh, before we just sit down and have you start naming executors. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. These special needs trusts that we're talking about today uh, is a good example of just how complicated this thing can be. And, you know, that gets me to another point here is, all right, um, so I get it. There's a couple of different types of trusts I need to think about. One of, the, one of the challenges here is with people with disabilities, 
And we always need to be thinking about who's going to be the trustee on this trust. Once I'm gone, and this money's for the benefit of my disabled child, uh, and that person uh, needs their money in, an, in a special needs trust, a supplemental needs trust, who's going to manage this thing? And it is, it is by far my preference when working with a family that we, um, that we use a professional trustee to manage the assets. And there's a couple of reasons for this, but at its, at its core, the, uh, the trust is designed to supplement what the state is paying for and not supplant it. But the definition of what, of what we're allowed to spend money on, the rules on what we're allowed to, to spend the money on, change over time. They change as a result of changes in regulations. They change as a result of court cases. They change um, sometimes based on uh, the, the feeling of the government caseworker. And, and so um, it, it pays here to have somebody that is sort of in this game be the trustee, sort of um, someone who has the understanding that um, of what's going on in, in this space. Are we allowed to distribute money for this item, for this service? Are we, are we not? Is, is Pennsylvania going to take issue with this? Is the federal government going to take issue with this? What are we allowed to spend the money on? And so there's a number of professional trustees in and around the Pittsburgh region that are in the business of being trustees on supplemental needs trusts. Uh, we have good relationships with them, and, and oftentimes when we are doing a lifetime trust, um, this is um, mom and dad are creating a trust during their life, and um, they're they're creating a trust for the benefit of a disabled child. We will even introduce them to the to the organization that is going to be the trustee at some point in time in the future, because then, you know, they get a feel for the the organization's values, what the organiz- organization does to to um, to support disabled people. And it tends to just uh, work pretty well. So it is my strong, strong preference that we name a professional trustee on supplemental needs trust because, one, it's an awful lot to ask of a family member to be uh, another family member's trustee in a supplemental needs trust. And, and that's if they get it right. right? But the real risk is they're not going to get it right. The real risk is they make a mistake and in making that mistake, we just jeopardized our disabled family members' access to their free health care, their, their, um, their income, and uh, that's not something we want to do. All right, so um, one more thing I want to chat with you about for planning with people with disabilities is not every person with disabilities uh, is going to go on public benefits. Uh, you know, there are families out there who are in a financial position where they don't have to uh, apply for public benefits, um, and for those people, the planning really circles more around support rather than rather than uh, public benefits access. Um, so sometimes you do support trusts, um, and just because somebody has a disability doesn't mean that the person doesn't have the capacity to do their own planning. And so, um, with disabled kids in particular, as a kid it re, uh, approaches adulthood, if you have a disabled child in high school and you are their legal guardian, once they hit that 18th birthday and, and they're no longer a, a minor as far as the law is concerned, you're no longer their guardian as far as the law is concerned. And so one thing that we have to uh, consider at that point is, do we need to apply for guardianship so that parent or other family member can continue to be the disabled person's legal guardian? Or does the person have the capacity to sign a power of attorney document that says mom or dad um, can can act on my behalf in the following ways, 
but not have that person declared to be a legally incompetent person so that we don't take away their rights to make their decisions. But that's something to consider. If you have uh, a child or a high school student who has some disabilities and, and you need to remain in control of the funds, you need to do some good planning for them, um, then we need to consider our options with regard to do we look to continue uh, the guardianship or do we do we rely on powers of attorney that they can sign after uh, after their 18th birthday. So just planning for decision-making. You know, at its core, estate planning, I say this time and time again on the show, estate planning is really only about control and access. Who's making the decisions? Uh, in the event of a guardian, it's it's whoever becomes the person's guardian or the agent under the power of attorney. If we're talking about the trust, the person in control is the trustee on that trust. On a special needs trust, that tends to be my recommendation that we go with a professional there because it's just too darn complicated otherwise. But who's in control and who's got access? And here with a supplemental needs trust, um, the disabled person is the person with access, but we have to limit that access to the extent that it doesn't supplement what the state and the government is paying for, because otherwise we lose that free health care. Right? Now, to learn more about all of this, please consider attending one of our workshops. You can find all about the workshops at secklerlawfirm.com, S-E-C-H-L-E-R lawfirm.com. Um, and I appreciate uh, your, your listening to the show today. And that about does it for us. Remember, folks, the Life and Legacy Show is for your education and entertainment. While we may talk about some lively legal issues, nothing in this show should be considered legal advice. We talk a lot in generalities, but your specific legal problem needs a specific legal solution, and you should hire a lawyer. If you need help, the Secular Law Firm is available at 724-841-1393 or at secularlawfirm.com. Thanks for listening. We'll check you out next week. This has been the Life and Legacy Show, sponsored by the Seckler Law Firm, where great families make great plans. SecklerLawFirm.com or call 724-841-1393.